Well, hey, Westside, and welcome to my living room. Uh, I am currently in isolation, have been for the last little while. I'm really looking forward to that being over, uh, which we think is going to be really soon, uh, probably the next day or so. And so that is exciting. But man, 2022 has uh, really come in like a broken record, hasn't it? It is a little bit more of the same, the same challenges, the same struggles, the things that we've been dealing with for such a long time. And I know uh, probably a number of you are dealing with some of the things, challenges that we have been as well. Um, maybe you've had uh, positive tests of COVID uh, in your household. Uh, you're dealing with restrictions. Uh, your kids have been home. Uh, if you have uh, school-age kids, your kids have been home the last couple of weeks, and you've maybe been trying to work or just get all the regular family stuff done and make sure that your kids are doing what they need to do on virtual schooling. And uh, now many of us are going to be figuring out how to get our kids back to school safely uh, or come up with another alternative, whatever you're doing tomorrow uh, as schools start back in. And so it has been kind of a wild and crazy time. And today I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the things that I've been learning and as we continue through this crisis, which um, has been a long crisis, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what it looks like and what is different about following Christ through crisis, um, how it's different from anybody else that's dealing with all this kind of stuff that we're following Jesus. And uh, so I want to jump into some of the things that I think um, might help us through that over the next few weeks. Uh, one of the things I've learned is that your peace is a product of your priorities, and when I talk about peace, I mean um, sort of that holistic wellness of who we are in every area of our life. Um, for us to say that we're doing well, we're healthy, uh, we're thriving in, in the best sense of that word, to be at peace, your peace is a product of your priorities, the things that are most important to you. Because the things that are most important to us set how we do everything else in our lives. When we have a real clear picture of what's most important, um, then we can decide what things we need to focus our time and energy and resources resources on and what things maybe we need to cut out. And I think in times of crisis and times of uh, enduring stress and hardships, as we have all been going through for uh, quite a while now, uh, we have an, a real opportunity to learn what those things are. What are our priorities? And then what are the things that maybe we need to cut out? And what are the things that uh, on the flip side, we really should be focusing on and diving into? Let me talk to you. I want to start by talking about uh, three common priorities that I think will lead us to frustration. And my guess is you're probably going to agree with me when I, when I talk about these. These are common things that I think uh, people uh, place as their top priorities. And all of them are actually good things that should somewhere fit into our lives. And yet I think if we make them our top priority, they're only gonna lead us to frustration. And we've learned that um, over the last couple of years. So the first one is productivity. So like I said, if you've got kids who are in school, these last couple of weeks, they've been at home. And uh, I know not everybody's in this position, but our position is that means we have two small kids are at, ho at home. And there's two of us who are trying to work and, and do our jobs online and uh, from home. And uh, so we're trying to get everybody we have a two year old, we're trying to watch and, and keep entertained and doing things. We have a five year old who's trying to do kindergarten online and, and keep him with his classes and doing his stuff. And then we've got all of our responsibilities that we're trying to fit in there. And one thing I've realize is if my top priority right now is to be productive, I'm going to be frustrated. I mean, I even think about uh, going for a family walk. We spend more time getting ready than we actually do walking. Having small kids just teaches you that productivity cannot be everything. And we live in a hyper-productive society and culture, one where we really prize uh, our efficiency and what we can do 
But a lot of us have learned over the last little while that that is just a frustrating way to live because we can't always be as productive as we want to be. And uh, when there's these intense periods of stress or times of disruptions or restrictions or whatever it is, we realize that's just not going to hold us. If we're just trying to be more productive, more productive, more productive, we end up burning out. We end up uh, just exhausted or we end up realizing I can't live up to these expectations, maybe even that I have for myself. And some of you have been there and you've, you've learned, man, we got to learn to give ourselves a bit of a break and change those expectations and figure out what that looks like for us. The second one, second priority that I think leads us to frustration, if it's our top priority, is individual freedom. Now, I will say, I am so glad that we live where we live and here in Canada that we have uh, a ton of individual freedom, comparatively speaking, to so many other people in the history of the world and presently in the world. But here, uh, here's what I think. I think we've also idolized our individual freedom. The idea that I can do whatever I want to do. One of the things that we've learned is that our private, uh, our private decisions have public consequences. That uh, none of the things that we do, the way that we live are just about us and don't affect anybody else. Sometimes we say things like that is you live however you wanna live as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Well, guess what? Everything that we do has an effect on other people in some way, shape, or form. The people that we are and the things that we do are going to affect other people. And we've learned that in drastic ways because uh, we've been dealing with a, a virus that is so contagious that we've realized what I do and what I, what I want to do and how I want to deal with this crisis is going to affect other people and vice versa. And that doesn't mean we're going to all agree on how we should deal with things. We don't. We've seen that. It's obvious. There's lots of opinions on what should happen and what restrictions there should be. I don't know anybody that likes restrictions, that wants more restrictions, but certainly there's people who have differing opinions on, on the ones that are necessary and what we should be following. And what we found out is what we all do as individuals affects everybody else as well. And so if your number one priority is I want to be able to do what I want to do. I want to be able to live my life the way that I want to live it and just do what I want to do. You're probably very frustrated. If you want to be able to go to the gym or a restaurant or the movies or go anywhere unmasked, again, it's not that these are bad restrictions. I think a lot of them are very necessary and we can argue about when and how much and all that kind of stuff. But we realize if your number one priority is your individual freedom, you're probably very, very frustrated. And we've seen it um, sort of in a, in a big way during this pandemic, sort of an exaggerated way. But I think it's always true is we have to be mindful that as much as we might have the freedom to choose, that doesn't mean we have the freedom from consequences. And that happens whether we're in a health crisis. It's true. What we do is going to have effect not only on our own health, but other people's health. We have to take that into consideration. We can't just do what we want to do. But it's really in all areas of life. And even if it's less exaggerated, it's true. You as an adult might have the freedom to eat donuts every single meal, but you will not be free from the consequences of eating donuts every single meal. And so individual freedom, as much as uh, I love that we have so much of it, can become an idol if we take it too far. And if it's your number one priority, then it's going to leave you frustrated. The third one is to feel good. And I feel like there have been a lot of conversations over the last couple of years about self-care. 
which I'm all for self-care, is the healthy practices to make sure that we are doing well, taking breaks from work and screens, exercising well, eating well, resting well, finding ways to laugh and, and be connected when it's hard to do that. And all those different things, very, very important. But we can often blur the line between what is self-care and what is self-indulgence. And I think one of the big distinctions there is we get to self-indulgence uh, when we start doing things that uh, gratify our desires in the short term, but we give up our health in the long term. So we do things right now that might feel good, even though in the long run, they aren't really good for us. And maybe maybe that's something that uh, you've struggled with is because in the midst of feeling bad, and we know that um, that, could that could be for so many different reasons, um, you might physically be feeling bad, especially if you're sick. Um, you might be emotionally feeling bad. We know uh, that mental health uh, for so many people has taken an even bigger hit in recent months and years as we've been under all this pressure. And so it, it might be anxiety or depression or just feeling down and frustrated. And when that happens, uh, we sometimes are tempted just what, what will make me feel good now? I just want to feel good now. That's my priority. I want to feel good as much as I can. And sometimes that means we give in to unhealthy habits that uh, will lead us long-term to frustration because it's not good for us. It's not good for our life. It's not life-giving. And when we're under stress, uh, what we find is um, we often get depleted and not just physically depleted, but our self-discipline is depleted. Our ability to resist temptation gets depleted and sometimes we're giving in. And so that could be, um, that could be to an addiction. It could be your eating habits. It could be your spending habits. It could be just things that you know you really shouldn't do, but you, you kind of give into the things that you watch or the amount of uh, entertainment that you consume and, and, and binge watching and just, um, just trying to feel good at times when that can be difficult. And so if you're, uh, if you're always just looking, your priority is I want to feel good, that can be really dangerous too. So what kind of priority can help us actually bring life into difficult situations, into crisis? And that's what I want to talk about in this series over the next few weeks. And to do it, I actually want to hit a few passages uh, in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation or the Apocalypse um, is a really powerful, symbolic, uh, crazy book. There's tons of amazing, deep, uh, rich metaphors and symbolism and some great things. And we're going to dive into some of that, especially next week. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think that's talking about and, and, and what it's all about. Um, but in the Revelation, which means the uncovering, an apocalypse, we often think of apocalypse, we think first thing, the end of the world. And actually, again, we'll get into this next week. Um, that's not what an apocalypse is when we're talking about biblical literature. Apocalypse means an uncovering, means we're seeing, we're getting a glimpse, a, a vision into the spiritual reality that we often don't see that is behind the physical realities of things that we do see. And so there's this, this powerful look into what God is doing, and that gives us light, uh, a certain uh, amount of light shed on um, our, our circumstances. And so uh, just a little bit of background in the book of uh, Revelation, what's going on. Um, the early Christians are under Roman rule, and that Roman rule is violent, it's oppressive, there's persecution of Christians, and so they're under some intense pressure, very stressful situation that is an ongoing thing, and they're trying to figure out how do we endure, how do we keep going, what is our purpose, and that's why this book is written, is to, to encourage them and to call them back into faithfulness. And so I want to be clear, because uh, the book of Revelation was not written for us. It was not written for people in 2022 who are going through a pandemic. Their struggles were different than our struggles. Their pain was inflicted in a different way than the things that we're going through. 
So we want to start with that kind of context and try and figure out what the principles are there. But as I've been studying this, and especially this passage that we're going to read today, uh, I also felt like God was saying, I want to speak to you, Westside Church. I want to speak to you and the things that you're going through today through this passage. And so we're going to uh, try and listen for the voice of God that was speaking originally uh, to these uh, ancient people but also with an eye of what he might be speaking to us. And I think some of the encouragement, some of the challenge that is in this text, I really believe God wants for us uh, here at Westside Church. A little bit of a reminder about prophecy when we're looking at prophecy. There is a tendency for us when we look at prophetic things in the Bible to think that the primary purpose of that prophecy is to tell us about the future. Give us a clear picture of what's going to happen in the future, almost like we're going to see a psychic or something like that. And that is not what biblical prophecy is primarily about. Prophecy is more of a prescription for the present than a prediction for the future. The real purpose of the prophecy and what we see, we see this in the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, as well as a book like Revelation, is to call people back to faithfulness. It's to tell them, In light of what God is doing in your circumstances, here's how you ought to live. Here are the things that ought to be your priority to get you through this and and for you to to remain centered in such a stressful time. And so um, where we start today, what we find out is in the first three chapters of Revelation, before we get into a lot of the uh, really symbolic and, and metaphors and crazy imagery that can be very hard to understand, what we find out is the book of Revelation was actually written as a letter to be circulated. It was written to seven churches that we find, especially in the chapters two of three of Revelation, where these churches are given encouragement. They're told what they're doing well. They're given um, challenge against things that aren't going very well and things that they need to change. Um, And they're given an opportunity to experience God's blessing in a new way. And so they are being called back to say, here's how you ought to live in light of what is going on. And I think it's really important for us to ground it there because everything else in the book of Revelation, the whole story and the imagery, the metaphors, the the symbolism, the, the, the grand story that plays out in the book is really to help answer the problems, the struggles, the questions of these early Christians that we find in the early chapters of Revelation. So that's where I want to start. And I'm going to read uh, a little bit from uh, Revelation chapter 2. This is part of um, part of a vision that's given to John that he is then to write to these churches. It says in Revelation 2, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. The lampstands is a metaphor, uh, light uh, for the churches. A lampstand is a church in this context. There's seven churches, seven lampstands. Uh, Churches are meant to be a light in the world, a light in dark places. He says, uh, I'm going to write you, I want you to write this, and this is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. We had a description of who that is, a description of uh, Jesus in the end of chapter one. I'm going to read that description. I'll explain some of the terms afterwards, but I want you, as I read it, I want you to try and get a mental picture. There's a lot of how we read Revelation is we're supposed to get this mental picture um, of, of what is being described to us in very vivid terms. And think about the emotions that come to you if you saw this figure. Revelation 1, 13 to 18 says, and standing in the middle of the lampstands, symbolic of the churches, 
Was someone like the son of man, he was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Can you see that in your mind's eye and your imagination? When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Oh, this amazing figure, this, this picture of Jesus. Think of what we see. We see his, his white hair like wool, uh, just so pure, this, this idea of, of purity. We see um, his passion the fire in his eyes. We see the power of his uh, like bronze polished feet, these powerful feet. And this, this powerful rushing voice that we hear um, is then like a sharp two-edged sword that this, this pure and passionate and powerful figure is going to speak. And the words that come out of his mouth are going to be like a sword that they are going to pierce us. They're going to get right inside of us into our hearts. They're going to be a powerful message to us that penetrates not just what's superficial in our life, but what is really meaningful. And you can see why John, you know, I fell down. I was scared like I was dead, but he put his right hand on me. He said, don't be afraid. Let me talk about some of the titles that are in there real quickly. And we could go on and on about uh, this picture of Jesus, but uh, we hear that he is the son of man. The son of man is a title uh, that we get from the book of Daniel, another uh, kind of prophetic book. Uh, this one in the old Testament and the son of man, you could talk, there's so much to talk about. Um, but N.T. Wright says, uh, talking about this title, talks about the Messiah who would bring the real end of exile, the final atonement for sin, the joining of a most holy place, the arrival of anointed prince. In other words, this is our savior figure. This is the one who is going to come and on God's behalf was going to rescue his people and was going to set things right. We read that he is the first and the last. And this is a term that comes from another Old Testament prophet, this one, Isaiah, uh, saying that this is, uh, and this comes from uh, biblical scholar Richard Bauckham. Uh, this is the God of Israel being the sole creator of all things and sovereign Lord of history. He is not a human-made God. He's incomparable to whom all nations are subject, whose purpose none can frustrate. He is the origin and the goal of history. He is the first word of creation and the last word in the new creation, that he is the one that brought every into he's the bookends of history the first and the last and he brought everything into being and he is going to set all things right he's the first and the last read that he is the living one in other words that he is the source of life life and christ participates uh, in the eternal livingness of god uh, what we call eternal life which because we read but then he died when we read of his his resurrection that his livingness was interrupted by death, but then he defeated death and he holds the keys to the grave that he can unlock death and give us life, eternal life, real deep life. This is the one who gives us everything that we need. And this is the one who the message comes from. We'll come back to that later because it's so important and we'll give credibility to everything that is said. So now back to chapter two. Verse two says, I know this is now the message to the church again. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You've discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without 
quitting. When I read that, here is kind of how I summarize that. I see you and I see how hard you're working. I see what you're going through. I see how you're enduring. Effort is not your issue. Effort is not your problem. I think some of us need to hear that message today. We're trying to be uh, good parents, good spouses, good employees, good friends. We're trying to be good citizens. We're trying to do everything that we have. And I know some of us, we're just burnt out. Either we're, we're lonely looking for connection or we're overworked and overlooked. Some of us, you know, you, you guys, you, some of you are healthcare workers. Some of you, your PSWs or nurses or, or doctors, or you're providing other essential services for us. You're overworked, you're overlooked. And I wonder if God might say to many of us the same thing. Effort's not your issue. I see how hard you're working. I see that you want to raise good kids. I see that you want to be a good Christian. I see that you want to help your neighbors. I, I see that you want to be productive. I see how hard you're working and that's not your issue. In fact, I say, way to go. You're doing good. I see all your hard work and I see how much endurance it takes to get through this. Maybe that's a message from God today for you. I see, I see it. I see how hard you're working. Maybe God's not saying, I need you to work harder. In fact, I think that is the message today. It's not that you need to work harder. He also says, you've done a good job uh, resisting evil people and making sure that you're just not giving in. We read later, uh, we're in a passage we're going to read a few minutes uh, about the Nicolaitans, that there was this group of people. We don't know a ton about the Nicolaitans historically, but it seems like there was this group of people who followed a guy named Nicholas, hence Nicolaitans. Um, and, and they were coming in and taking people uh, off track. They were probably antinomian, which means they were anti-law. They were probably saying to people, it doesn't really matter how you live anymore. All, all these laws, all these rules, don't even worry about it. And I think the encouragement here is, but you stuck with it. You know that what you do actually does matter. You haven't believed that lie that what you do doesn't matter. And I see that you're working hard. You are working hard. One of the other... Um, Historical guesses to the Nicolaitans is that um, uh, they claim to be sort of a, a Christian faction, and uh, they were they were taking the religion and mixing it with prostitution, which was something that happened in some of the Roman temples, temples to certain goddesses, um, and, and this was just obviously a very destructive practice. Um, and again, it's, hey, I know you're working hard. And I know you're resisting some of these practices that it might might be easy culturally to give into, but you haven't. So way to go. I see how hard you're working. Then verse four, he says, but I have a complaint against you. Here it is. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Now I'm reading from the New Living Translation and they've taken a little bit of liberty um, uh, to talk about what is translated here. They've said, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. Literally it says you have abandoned your first love or the love that you had at first. And they've translated this to help us as uh, love for God and love for others because that's a priority that God sets. I think that's, that's not too bad. Um, but here, here's the complaint coming from God. It's not that you're not working hard. I know you're working hard, but here's my complaint. You've abandoned me as your priority. You've made me and you've made our relationship or what I would say, participation in the kingdoms, what Jesus taught, seek first the kingdom and all that you do, seek first the kingdom, your participation in what God is doing, your relationship with him and how that's worked out in the world and the way that you love everybody else. Seek first the kingdom, seek first the kingdom. And I think that's what the message is here. Your effort isn't the problem, your affection is because your peace is a product of your priorities. I think the message is God's saying, you're, you're not making me a priority anymore. 
I have become one of many things that you're working on. And we see that. It's not that they, 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 they weren't doing anything with their spiritual lives or, or with the kingdom. He said, I see the works you're doing and you're doing them, but you've abandoned your first love. You've abandoned me as your, your number one top priority. See, when God is our top priority, all the other things that are very important get set into the proper proportion in our lives. That's what happens with a, with a priority. It sets everything else in the proper proportion in our lives. So we talked about at the beginning, the things that are frustrating. Well, it's, it's frustrating if productivity is your number one priority and you can't be as productive as you think you should be or somebody else thinks you should be. And God here, I think, calls the church and says, come back to your first love, your top priority. I don't want to be one among many priorities. I want to be your priority again. So he says, look how far you have fallen or remember how you have fallen. Do you remember a time where God was your number one priority? Where everything else was subordinate to that? Where your passionate experience of God and the time that you spent with him and the way you made decisions was all based on the fact that God was your number one priority, your number one loyalty, your number one object of, of faithfulness, everything for him. He says, remember how far you've fallen. Remember where you once were. And he says, turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. Again, it's not that your works, uh, the, the works don't matter. It's just, I want to get those in the right priority. Come back to me. And then he says this, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Remember, lampstand is that symbol. You're a church. You're a light. If Jesus is not your number one priority, you're not really a church. And Westside Church, a church, a gathering of people committed to following Jesus. And some of you might not be there yet. You might be uh, investigating following Jesus. That's fine. And next week, we're going to talk about specifically what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus, how that shapes our lives, what some of those, uh, those characteristics are. But here's the thing. If he's not our number one priority, we're not even really a church. Message here, I'll take your lampstand because... Because what are you? If this isn't your number one thing, if this is not your number one priority. And so I think many of us, we need to stop and we just, we need to remember. Maybe remember a time where we were that passionate, where we were that faithful, where we were that on fire to say everything else in my life has to come under the kingdom, under my relationship and our relationship collectively with God, our first love, our greatest affection. He goes on to say, but this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans we talked about before, just as I do. So, hey, you're doing some great, you're doing some really good things. I just want you to come back and make me your priority. Then he says, anyone with ears to hear. So if you really want to hear. And it's easy to say, I, man, I, you know, I listen to this, but I'm not really going to let it sink in. I'm not going to let it change me. This is a very uh, typical prophetic way of saying, if you really want to hear, if you really want to take this in. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. This is an allusion to uh, the early chapters in, in Genesis uh, where Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they're in the paradise of God. The tree of life is there. It's, it's this uh, rich 
powerful way of saying God's giving you everything you need for eternal life. Remember, remember the one who has gone down to death and defeated and he has the keys to the grave to unlock the grave to give you life. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to, to, to bring you back to the tree that, that Adam and Eve had available to them. But after they sinned, after they were in shame uh, and they were expelled from the garden, they, they no longer had access to, well, well I want to give you this. If you, you come make me your, your first priority, your first love. I'm going to show you the way back to the tree, to real life. I'll give you everything that you need for life. Everything that you need, you'll get from something else. I want to give to you. God doesn't want to be a priority amongst money. He wants to be our lives because he can give us life. He is the living one. And he has the keys to the grave to unlock death and to give us that life. To call us back uh, to enjoy the fruit of that tree and to live in the paradise of God. So here's my question. Here's my challenge to you as we think about uh, what, that, what that would mean for us. For those of us who have ears to hear what God might be saying to us, calling us back to faithfulness, my question that I would love for you to ponder is, what rivals God is your priority? Really, functionally speaking, what rivals God is your priority? Let me give you three questions that if you're not 100% sure what that might be, uh, might help you figure that out. What do you daydream about? When your mind kind of wanders, what do you daydream about? Usually it's the things that we think are going to give us the kind of life that we've always wanted. What do you daydream about? Or flip side is, what do you worry most about? What do you worry the most about? What do you think could ruin your life? And that's going to point you to what you think will give you life. And third, how do I define a successful life? What is it if you sat down and said, this is what it means to be successful. What, what, what are those things? And I think these questions will point us to what we think should be our top priority and what might rival God as our top priority, if we're really honest. Functionally, this is what happens in our spiritual lives uh, with our relationship to Jesus. Um, when God isn't our priority, we kind of say, Man, I want to be a good Christian. Of course I do. I want to raise uh, good children, loving children who love Jesus. I want to be a, a, a good Christian spouse, all these guys. But I also want to be this and this and this, and I want to be successful and I want to have money. I want to be rich. I want to be popular. I want to be, uh, compare well to my, my friends. I want to be, you know, all these other things. And the call today, I think, is to say, man, so many of those things can be so great. But what's our number one priority? Who or what is really going to give us life? How would you finish this sentence? What I need to have a truly good life is blank. What is it? And then picture the one who was living and died and then came back to life with the keys of death. Picture the one who calls us to the tree of life. Says, I want to give you everything that you need. You think you might be able to get somewhere else. And he calls us to repent. It means to rethink to rethink your entire life. And some of us, we just think it's, it's like, a, oh, I have to feel guilty and say I'm sorry. And that might be part of it is, is apologizing, but it's to really rethink. And in this case, to rethink our priorities. What is my number one priority? And therefore, how, do the rest, uh, how does the rest of my life fit into that, that priority, that number one thing? And the call, I think, is, is Jesus calling us back to our first love, to the God who loves us first. So uh, we're going we're gonna to sing one more song. The band's going to sing one more song. And wherever you're at, whether you're in the room uh, or whether you're in your living room, like me, 
uh, I would offer for you to take this opportunity, uh, not just a few minutes of this song, um, but throughout this week to have some quiet moments, to quiet your heart, quiet your environment, and to ask God to speak. Maybe to just ask him to show you where you need to repent of things that have become your priority, a bigger priority than he is. And then to start rethinking your life in light of the one who loves you and wants to give you real, true life. And next week, we're going to get into some of the, uh, the symbolism and the metaphors and the characteristics of what it looks like to prioritize Christ in our lives and, and how he can um, bring us not just through a crisis, uh, but our entire lives, giving us everything that we need. So I hope you'll join us for that. Let me pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, um, thank you that you know us. You know how hard we have been working. You know our struggles. You know the energy depletion. You know uh, where we hurt and where we have pain. And we thank you for that. And thank you for sustaining us and giving us um, so much grace and forgiveness. Today, I pray that you would convict us and this week that you would speak to us and that you would clearly call out the things that we have made too much of in our lives, perhaps that we've made idols of in our lives. And that you would reveal yourself to us as faithful and forgiving. As we re recommit to you, that you would show yourself to be the loving God that you are and there to give us more and more peace as we follow you even through crisis. We pray these things in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.